This is The Guardian. I think I saw my society, my nation, through how the world dealt with my father and my brothers. And they had the dark skin. They incurred the first-hand racism and the slurs. It really is an act of defiance to love our children as Indigenous men, you know, from what we were taught at school, that our forefathers were savages and unintelligent, and, you know, what happened with the intervention, the way that a Prime Minister told the country that we were these evil people that our children needed protection from rather than being their fathers that loved them. How has the continuous colonial oppression of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people of this continent shaped Indigenous masculinity and fatherhood? How has all of the ensuing generational trauma associated with the invasion, dispossession and murder of First Peoples, the state theft of their children and their disproportionate deaths in custody, their stereotyping in politics, media and white culture impacted on the way Indigenous men see themselves and relate to one another and their sons? These are big questions, and they're questions at the heart of a recent book by Thomas Mayer, Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons. A Torres Strait Islander man who now lives on Larrakia country in Darwin, Thomas is a dad of five. He is a wharfie and an official for the Maritime Union of Australia. As an activist, he has advocated widely for the 2017 Uluru Statement from the Heart. He is also a writer and the author now of four books. Today he speaks to us from Tasmania. It's also a privilege to have in our virtual company from Paris in the very early morning, the acclaimed novelist Tara June Winch. Tara is a Wiradjuri author who was born in Australia and now lives in France. She has won numerous literary awards for her first novel, Swallow the Fire, and her story collection, After the Carnage. Her captivating and evocative most recent novel, The Yield, earned her a long series of top literary awards, including the New South Wales Premiers, the Prime Minister's Award, the Voss Literary Award, and Australia's most coveted literary prize, the Miles Franklin Award, in 2020. Tara wrote the foreword to Thomas's Dear Son, but as you'll see, she also played a critical part in the creation of this book, which is an elegant and provocative anthological exploration of Indigenous masculinity and fatherhood. It comprises letters from fathers to sons and an occasional son's letter to a father from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men. The anthology includes Troy Cassadaly, Black Douglas, Jack Lattimore, Stan Grant, Charlie King and many more Indigenous men. Its themes resonate strongly with some of Tara's own writing, I think not least the yield, in which knowledge through the rediscovery of traditional language is passed down by the character Albert Poppy Gundawindi. All of this makes for a very special edition today of Book It In, Guardian Australia's podcast about books and the important conversations they can inspire. I'm Paul Daly and I'm pleased to be part of this conversation today. Tara and Thomas, welcome. Tara, I was wondering if it was possible to start with you, please, and a reading from your forward in Dear Son, because it really crystallises uh, succinctly and elegantly what Thomas's book is about. I'm not surprised by the tenderness on these pages, as I myself grew up with a Wiradjuri, Gunjagara, Ngunnawal father who was hard and soft, whole 
and broken, but above all, loving. I'm the daughter, the woman, and the mother I am today because of the father I had. There is such a great responsibility to be a father, to step up to that role to guide one's children, to be a pillar of strength in the family and community at home and work. Sometimes the expectation and pressure to appear strong, coupled with the trauma many of our men carry, has led to difficulties with family or with the law. These stories don't shy away from introspection on these issues. Yet within these pages are the words of sculptors. What I mean is that these men have taken the clay material of the past, all that trauma of colonial weight, and with it all the water of community, thousands and thousands of years of culture, family, country, and have made something else. These men have chosen to sculpt, and there is the beauty of each of these letters. They have shared with the young men and boys of today and tomorrow the lessons they have learned. They have shown them how to make something solid out of all the materials we've been bestowed with. In the end and along the way, that is what matters. The demonization of the black man is a colonial stain psychologically and emotionally harmful at best, detrimental and life-threatening at its worst. When Thomas and I met, I knew he was a great role model. I think we spoke about this book so early in our talking because we were both concerned by the lies and stereotypes about First Nations men being thrown around the media at the time and since we were kids ourselves. You're right there about how when you and Thomas met, I think it was at the Perth Writers' Festival, he said there are all sorts of these lingering negative stereotypes about Indigenous men uh, being thrown about in the media, and they had been since since you were young too, and probably from long, long before then. What were some of these myths and caricatures? And I get the impression from what you were saying, you really, really wanted him to write this book when he got back uh, from Perth and settled on his next project together. Yeah, I think I just grabbed Thomas and I think it's the first thing I said to you, Thomas. Um, And I don't usually walk up to writers and tell them what to write or like insist on them following a certain path, but I felt such a connection to Thomas even before I met him. I thought he was such a huge role model. I thought his story about being a young father I knew he was a young father. He'd sort of raised these almost two generations of children. And he is really unfaltering person, this strong pillar in the community and someone that I think I saw as like a brother. And Thomas really, it was not long after my brother died that I met Thomas. And um, Thomas reminds me, and he knows this, I've said it many times, so much of my brother, just his, the way he's strong and gentle at the same time, the way he is able to be this new masculine. And I think the reason why male characters are so important in my writing and why I thought this book was so important is because I, my Aboriginal line is through my father. I grew up with a really, a very close connection with my father and I had two older brothers 
And, yeah, I saw the world. I think I saw my society, my nation, through how the world dealt with my father and my brothers because I grew up as a fair-skinned Indigenous woman, a young girl, and I took on my mother's skin and they had the dark skin. They incurred um, the first-hand racism and the slurs. Um, So I felt a great empathy toward the men in my life. Thomas, could you please read us an excerpt from your letter to your son? Your pop's generation were born under lawful segregation and the complete control of a white chief protector. Pop lived in Queensland, the state that inspired apartheid in South Africa. His generation of young men were the first to throw off those shackles, but they remained bound by the walls of prejudice. His generation, mine and yours, we all struggle against a more subtle, more cunning systemic racist control. This and more than 200 years of intergenerational trauma. These burdens are uniquely ours to carry on this stolen land. To this ongoing struggle, for you and your children to come, I have dedicated my life. With my obligation to the following generations in mind, I thought it would be good for you and me both if I were to write about fatherhood. Reading books and writing thoughts are wonderful things. I can hear you saying, yes, Dad, I know. You tell me every time we talk. Well, son, this letter is my example for you. I will write to you about the behaviours that I once thought were acceptable for men, behaviours I now know are wrong. I will also write about the effects of historical trauma that I have passed on to you and your sisters. For good measure, I have invited some friends to write about fatherhood as well, because different perspectives are essential. I want you to learn to be a good man, a good partner to your loved ones, a good human being. And I want you to understand that there are more ways than one to do this if you learn humility, empathy and how to love the way our ancestors did. Thanks, Thomas. Um, So you did write and edit the book after that initial conversation with Tara at Perth uh, Writers' Festival. I'm just really interested in uh, how you went about it and how did you end up settling on the form of a collection of letters rather than perhaps a single polemic or, or an essay? Oh, well, um, the first thing I said to Tara, I thought it was a great idea and everything, but I said that I, I didn't think that I was capable of doing it, you know, just such a, a deeply personal thing to do. Um, I knew my flaws as a, as a man, as a father. I just knew that this would be such a, a tough task to take on. Though, you know, we we agreed, obviously, I agreed that it was such an important thing to do for all the things that, uh, all the reasons that Tara mentioned. Uh, I think it was uh, perhaps a couple of months after, or maybe a month or something after that meeting, I read uh, James Baldwin's uh, The Fire Next Time. And the it was the, the letter to his nephew, um, that essay, it, it just sparked me. I thought, hey, this is the perfect way to write about fatherhood. And, um, and so the, I got straight on to Tara pretty much and I said, hey, Tara, I think I've, I've got the way that we can do this and um, I think I'll do it. And then Tara supported me by just um, helping me work out which, which guys to approach and everything and it went from there. Your, your letter to your eldest boy starts, do you remember when you were about nine you tried to take my hand as you always did? And I said, you're too old to hold my hand in public. 
Where did that come from, Thomas? And how painful was it to confront that when you were writing your letter to your boy? The hardest thing to do really was to start the letter, uh, my own letter. And it was um, actually, it was the first thing I did before I got in touch with Tara was I thought, let me try this out and see how I go. And I sort of dug deep and thought, okay, what are the things that I did wrong as a father? And and that was something that, you know, really came to mind just as something that, you know, was was as I remembered what I did and, and knowing what I know today, uh, it was a real heart sore for me, you know, and that was why I opened the book with that, you know. I thought it was just a, an immediate connection to something that is a problem, I think, with masculinity and, and the way that we raise our sons. And you talk in the, in the reading you just gave about the behaviours that you once thought were acceptable for men, you know, behaviours you, you now know are wrong. What, what sort of things are you thinking about? Yeah. Well, I'm talking about toxic masculinity, basically. You know, I think I was described by Tara, you know, as this uh, this gentle, you know, masculinity. But as a young man, I, I talked, uh, you know, there was homophobia, you know, I played rugby league and, you know, we knocked around and, and all these sorts of things. And, um, and so that's the sort of behaviour that I'm talking about, you know, not only the way that we express love and, we, and vulnerability, um, but also what we see that is is rife, you know, with the way that men behave in Australian society that really needs to change. Um, you know, you see it, I, I talk about it in the introduction, how, you know, the, the intervention and the way that Aboriginal men were demonised um, and that it was basically announced by a Prime Minister to the country that pedophilia and domestic violence and all these things were Aboriginal problems. All the while, you know, this it was rife in Parliament, you know, that people were behaving like that in the place that these decisions were being made. Thomas, I, I know you've parented, as Tara said, effectively two generations of children. I'm just wondering how your fathering has evolved with that really obvious deep introspection you've undertaken. Yeah, so, you know, my first three kids, they're 24, 23 and 21 now. You know, I was much more harsh on them. You know, I I tried to raise them the same way that my father did and I often found myself, um, you know, saying the same things and doing the same things. And not all of that was bad, but um, a lot of it I, I realised with the, you know, as they've grown up and as I've learnt as a, as a person and, and seen what's wrong and, and what can be done better, uh, you know, I'm much more relaxed with my, my next two children that are um, 10 and 8 now. And uh, it's it's quite a change, I think. I mean, the the older kids have grown up to be good kids and everything like that. But uh, you know, we we have a great relationship, and this book is is a continuing conversation with those older kids as well. Tara, I know there's some things you want to talk to Thomas about and ask him. So please go ahead. I wanted to ask about how fatherhood changed you from that young man, and touch on what Paul asked. Um, and in compiling the book, you said that loving ourselves is an act of defiance. I wanted you to talk about um, how these men in the book teach and represent self-love and how you think that impacts not only the family but communities and societies at large. Yeah, I think the first memory I have of how fatherhood changed me um, 
I was a wharfie, you know, so I drove cranes, um, you know, up in the huge big cranes, 30 metres up in the air or whatever. And uh, I, I remember that I never had any fear driving those cranes, right? They're really high and stuff and bounce around. And uh, the first thing that I noticed that had changed in my mind was I was suddenly afraid of of all sorts of things. I don't know if this is the sort of thing that I... <laughs> but, um, I was suddenly afraid and I and I sort of realised, geez, you know, like my life isn't just about myself sort of thing anymore. I, I think it's because I'm a father now and I, I want to survive for them, you know what I mean? It was the strangest thing. And as far as the act of defiance goes, you know, uh, it really is an act of defiance to love our children as Indigenous men, you know, from what we were taught at school that our forefathers were... Uh, were savages and unintelligent and, you know, what happened with the intervention, the way that a prime minister told the country that we were we were these evil people that, um, that our children needed protection from rather than, you know, being their fathers that loved them. And, uh, you know, in that awful Bill Leake cartoon in 2015, I think it was, that basically said things that are still said in the media today disgracefully you know, that Indigenous parents don't care or, or don't even know their, their children's name sort of thing. Um, so it is an act of defiance to, to love ourselves against all of that, you know, that tide of racism uh, and prejudice that is always against us. And, uh, and that's why I wrote that. There's something, I think Joe Williams' letter, and I've known him for decades, but it really floored me, this letter to his young son when he talked about issues that he'd already written about in in his book Defying the Enemy Within um, and that he talks often about in social media and in his men's circles is when he talked really openly about the impact of drugs and alcohol abuse. Um, But when he does so, he talks about the trauma, he talks about the root causes of, of wanting to escape from the past and to forget and that the key to recovery was was really talking, was yarning it up. That's what I really loved about this book. How do you think that everyone is yarning and, and why is that so important? Uh, look, Joe and all of the contributors to the book were just so generous, you know, in this yarn. They really open up. Um, they have just poured out all of the, you know, all of these things that they've done, all of the things that they feel are wrong. And, and Joe talks to his son he calls him long son you know because he's so tall and long uh and you know just especially in joe's letter you know the the love really just exudes in the in the pages and he you know talks about his experience as a famous footballer and uh everything that he had to deal with with drugs and alcohols and the expectations and and all that um we did a we did a Zoom on the launch of the book, Joe and I, and he got his son in and he's really shy. But at the same time, you could see the young fella's pride, you know, that his father was talking about these things and, yeah, such a beautiful thing. Thomas, I'm really interested in what sort of reactions you've had from, from Mob here and there about the book and what sort of reactions you're getting from the young fellas and how that might differ from, from the older blokes. It's been such a great response from, you know, the Indigenous community and uh, there's been times where, uh, 
you know, I really felt that this book was so important when people shared their experiences about what they, you know, after reading it. The young young men getting in touch with me and saying, I've just read your book, you know, there's so much in this that reminds me of my own relationship with my father and I just wanted to let you know that I've given him a call and reached out and, and you know, so it's, it's life-changing in ways. I was just yesterday, actually, I was with a sister there in, in Brisbane, um, Lauren Apo. She runs Books and Yarns. It's a little Instagram book club thing and, and she's telling me that she's read the book twice already, you know, because she's been through uh, some tough times in her life and, and had uh, lost some, some faith in men and, uh, and that this book has really helped her to reframe things and think about how um, what an act of defiance it is to teach our men to love themselves um, and how important it is um, to heal all these things, uh, you know, all of these wounds that have been inflicted on our people. Um, that was just such a special moment. And, and really, you know, I mean, this is written for anybody to read. You know, there's, there's you know, any, any person in a family, uh, you know, mother, you know, son, nephew, um, you know, whoever, can can get a lot out of this book. But I really wanted to write this for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, you know, as something to celebrate um, our men and to defy, uh, you know, the things that have been told about us. Tara, I, I read today that one of the driving forces behind the yield was your desire to, to give something back to your dad by honouring the Wiradjuri language he'd not known as a child. Um, and that's how you came to create this wonderful character, Albert, and his extraordinary dictionary. Um, did your dad and his family, the men, lament that not knowing of language that, that you talk about? Yeah. Um, dad grew up with lots of sisters. He's the youngest. So he has this um, real softness and he loves to be around women <laughs> this real gentleness in a way that sort of needs to be cared for in a sense if you, you want to I think he, he 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 comes across as someone who's yearning to to live and to to heal he carries around a lot of pain um and that pain comes from being taken off country from losing his mother really young to those traumas that he inherited down the bloodline and the traumas that he underwent as a young man. Um, I think it's important to note that the traumas that our fathers have, they're not just passed down to our sons, you know, passed down to our daughters too. Um, and I definitely felt the full weight of his life's trauma and his mother's trauma um and that came out in yeah all my writing but this one in particular that idea of um that I could see the pain of that broken link could see the pain in my father and we talked about it of of not having inherited culture um of not having inherited language and having to go back to country him and his sisters yeah I wanted to present the work that Dr Uncle Stan Grant Sr. had done with 
the linguist John Ryder in preserving the Wiradjuri language. I wanted to present that um, real-life work that had been done, that resurrection of a language in a story that he could follow, um, that he could, you know, root for characters that was a good yarn. So it was about, yeah, presenting that that beauty of culture in a way that, that he could listen to on the audio book and, and follow along with and in the car, on <laughs> the CDs in the car, um, and just, yeah, engage with that and to be proud again, you know, um, and and he did. He's he's picked up language. It's it's it did. It has connected us in a way, and him with his grandchildren in a way that I hoped. You know, I hoped it would be a balm for that wound. You know, in the same way that um, dear son has connected dad and I. Reading the early proofs of the letters um, and thinking about the impact that my father had on my life. Um, and the impact his his trauma even had on my life, I began to really open up and, you know, take on what Joe was talking about and take on what Thomas was talking about, about being open, about being vulnerable, about um, this masculinity and feminism being a conversation. And, um, yeah, we had some big talks that came out of this book, these early proofs, my dad and I. And he quit the grog from the impact of this book, which was a lifelong battle for my dad. So this book has had, and the way these men have opened up, has had a huge impact on our lives. Yeah, and and our hope for the future, you know, this healing. That that's amazing, Tara, and thanks for thanks for sharing that. It's um, it's an extraordinary story. I was going to ask you what after he finished the uh the audio book of the yield how he responded to that emotionally yeah he just loves language he loves his own country and he has a pride in his culture and his his you know identity as a first nations man he has such a joy and celebration and he's excited that people are interested in him and his story you know people are becoming more interested in him and his story and and what life's been like for him, for his mother, for his sisters, um, for his ancestors. So, yeah, there's this, and that's only in the last, you know, five years really that we've seen that real shift, I think, for men in particular. What do you think, Thomas? Yeah, I completely understand. Uh, you know, I grew up on Larrakia country in Darwin, uh, you know, not in the Torres Strait where my father was from. Um, and as I write about in my letter to my son, uh, you know, my father was not the type that, well, he, he wouldn't teach me culture. Uh, you know, he didn't speak language. He, he could, uh, but his attitude was to, to get on with it, right? Um, he just wanted us to, to fit in in Darwin. And that wasn't the way that he, he raised us. But I was fortunate, though, that you know, he when it comes to our traditional tucker and hunting and all that, you know, we love to do that. And that was the way that we connected and bonded. And I was also lucky that, you know, there's a strong Torres Strait Islander community in, in Darwin and so I learned to island dance. Um, but especially lately, you know, I, I really want to get back to country basically, to, to the Torres Strait and, and learn language. It's such a powerful connector, uh, you know, 
to our culture and it's yeah it's it's so important tara yeah i understand how your father feels about that mm. and the fact that language and and country is so connected you know to our well-being it's so similar my childhood is that's the way we connected with culture and that's the way dad taught us to be proud was our interaction totally with country with going back to country with bushwalking with teaching us about all the uses and names for plants and um, how to fish. Fishing was a big thing. I know it is for you and it has been for me and my grandparents. It was just everything to us. There's such a sense of healing and self-love and um, and power from going back to country, from speaking language, from doing, from having the dance, from, from spearing the fish. Yeah. You can feel that through all these letters when men talk about culture and country and land and uh, reconnecting. What do you think? Yeah, like uh, the, there's various topics covered in all these letters, right, you know, like uh, there's, there's the, you know, I mean the vulnerability, the honesty, the uh, all of that's there. And the other thing that comes through, one of my favourite letters, well, my favourite letter in the book I think is Yesay Mosby's uh, letter to his sons, and, and Yese is a uh, Torres Strait Islander, a Musig Island, and uh, this real strength of protection comes through in his letter, you know, and connectedness to culture. And he explains how the system works, really, um, about how children are taught and, and how they're, you know, future leaders and, and this sort of thing, but also about how, uh, sadly, in that letter about climate change and how rising seas are starting to take away, you know, bones of their ancestors are washing up as the high tides are coming higher and higher all the time. You know, and, and yes, he talks about how he can, you know, his great, great, great grandparents, you know, where they're buried and, uh, you know, from well before colonisation type of thing, and, and the seeds starting to take their graves, you know, it's just um, such a powerful letter to his sons. A real wake-up call, I think, for anyone that reads it. Definitely. Um, Thomas, recently you began an opinion article, um, it was for The Guardian actually, powerfully and provocatively like this. You wrote, as I write this article, my children are stealing cars and robbing houses, I suppose. Of course, that wasn't the case that was your way in but where where did this come from and um what were you writing in response to i mean i was sparked when i read an article in uh the courier mail it was and i mean it was just so disgusting i mean that those words that i said at the beginning of the uh, article were pretty much what this journalist this you know elderly white male uh, said that Indigenous children are doing while Indigenous parents are marching the streets, um, you know, as if we're, we're so irresponsible. You know, in complete ignorance to the reason that we're marching the streets in the first place is because we love our children. You know, it's because we want change and we want to make this country better. And people like this guy need to go extinct, you know, they're, they're the problem. And, of course, he was really doubling down on the leaked cartoon five years ago and defending it. Yeah, praising up that disgusting cartoon, you know. 
It's, I mean, yeah, I mean, really, it's, I'd already written this book, really, and all of us men had said all these, uh, you know, shared all these wonderful things. But yeah, I was just so fired up when I read that. It's just so sad that people can be so ignorant and that that article had to be written in the first place. Uh, one Indigenous father that someone bought this book for actually said that, you know, um, he said, you have to wonder why we have to say these things in the first place in this book. You know, it's just terrible that people can think that Indigenous parents love our children less than others. You know, it really is racist. Tara, just, just on that, you know, you talk about the colonial stain in your, your forward, but I'm wondering what you observed of the reactions of the Indigenous men in, in your life at the time of these two events, you know, the 2007 intervention and, and uh, the suspension of the RDA and these um, pretty vile typecasting of Aboriginal men and also that cartoon we've been talking about, both of which are kind of strong elements in Thomas's book. Yeah, I think we've seen this um, since we were kids, Thomas, our fathers and grandfathers and great-grandfathers. I think we've seen this shame, you know, I think the reaction for so long that we grew up with was this sort of, well, for me, a bent person that was bent by those things that um, hung their head, you know, that looked down at the ground. And I think what's really important about a book like this is that it says two things. It says we are not those things, but also it says hold your head up. You know, we are all these great things. Um we can be what we've always known ourselves to be. We can be proud men. We can be these pillars in the community without all the the pressure. We can sort of draw strength from that. I think a book like this and um, how I see Indigenous men today that differed from how I saw my father's generation is that there's um, there's a... Willingness not to be quiet anymore. You saw that by you know one of the contributors, um, journalist Dan Grant, who who also wrote the the Australian Dream, talking about Adam Goods. You can see that just so powerful because I think when we think about masculinity and especially the black man, we think about the body in so many ways, and we see the body so much in such heroism and also such. Um, negativity through sport. I think that was what was so powerful about um, The Strange Dream, about Adam Goods and about people like Joe Williams um, and other black sportsmen is, is reclaiming their bodies and at the same time sort of reaffirming that we are their descendants of warriors, of strongmen, of inventors, of scientists. So there is a, a stereotype of... Indigenous men in in sport that you know they they are cheered when they're on the ground for their you know physical prowess and objectified too by crowds as being these amazing warrior like athletes. But then, as it happens, sometimes when they show their culture, as Adam Goods did, there's a real backlash. I'm just wondering if you've got some thoughts on that, Thomas. Yeah, I think um, because of the courage of Adam Goods and, uh, you know, Nicky Winmar and, and others in the past, um, 
and and still today that are speaking up louder and louder and and not accepting you know the way that they're treated in sport uh then i think that's changing things you know and it needs to change because it has a it has a real harm on people um you know on their lives on their families and uh yeah it's just really uh, great that they're standing up to that Just um, going slightly lateral here, just given this is a book of letters, I'm wondering what each of your relationship with the letter is and, and letter writing, if you have one. Has it ever been a primary means of communication with anyone special? And I guess I'm thinking, Thomas, you know, you've written this letter to your son, but was was this a first to your son? Yeah, absolutely. It was a first. Um, no, I, I had never written a letter like this to anybody before you know I never expected to be a writer uh, at all I was a wharfie you know driving cranes and stuff and and then I stumbled onto something not stumbled onto but I, I I believed in something so much that it caused me to try and move people in in many different ways and and writing was one of them um, that's what I think I said to Tara you know when I decided to write this and got back onto you that yeah, I mean, it's almost like you're talking to someone, you know. It's almost like, um, you know, like uh, oral storytelling, like, um, you know, passing things down orally as, you know, our culture has, you know, successfully for, you know, many millennia. And uh, and so that's why I thought it was a perfect way to, to do this, you know, the epistolary form. I had to look it up, yeah. Um, and, you know, many of these fellows in this book, I think it should be acknowledged to have never written before either, you know. Uh, Johnny Little, who's from Central Australia, um, his letter is, is just beautiful. He he did this really special thing with his son, Ryan, who's a journalist with NITV, and he read it to his son. Unfortunately, it was over Zoom because of COVID. He couldn't be there in person, but they recorded, you know, him reading it to his son, Ryan, and, uh, yeah, it was just so beautiful to watch. And, yeah, Johnny had never written before. You know, we he wrote the first draft and we back and forth and over Zoom until we had it. And, yeah, so much. It was such a beautiful thing to write these letters to our sons together. So surprising because there's such a musicality in the in the writing. There is such a, like, inherent storytelling arc in all the letters I think they're they're really accomplished and it really feels like a proper yarn it feels like you're being talked to you know at the kitchen table at the at the fire pit yeah I wasn't even that strategic about it to be honest you know like um, we we threw some names around and you know some of them fell through some of them followed through but um, I was sort of worried that they might all be too similar too you know, Tara, I thought, oh, you know, it's going to be, at one stage it might have been 16 letters, but it ended up being 12 plus my bookend letters to my son and my father. And I started to get worried that, you know, they might be saying the same stuff, you know, because uh, they all read my letter, my draft letter before they started theirs. Uh, but, yeah, they're just, they've just emerged so differently, you know, such different subjects, such different feelings and expressions. 
I love something that you wrote in your letter, um, the final letter to your father, when you said you were preparing me for a world that would not love me like you do. I wanted you. I wanted to ask you about that, about that sentiment. Yeah, it was because in when I wrote the letter to my son, I wanted to be honest and open about how my father raised me, you know, and it was tough and it was harsh at times. Uh, but I never doubted that he loved me. And, you know, isn't writing such a wonderful thing that you can really analyse these things as you as you draft and, and you, you know, you put the pen to paper. And, and so I wanted to conclude the whole book with a very short, I think it's only 700 words letter to my father that is just celebratory, you know, that, that celebrates him. And in, in that part there, I think I say, yeah, that, that his harshness was because he was preparing me f- for a world that wouldn't love me like he did, you know, that that if he wasn't like that to me and I went out and stuffed up, you know, it could be worse. You know, run into a, a racist cop or, you know, that we know is out there, you know, into a system that, that kills uh, black men without justice still in this country, you know, that like David Dungay Jr., and the list goes on, over 400, you know, men and women. Uh, yeah, so that was why he felt he had to be harsh. He had to prepare me for that sort of world. What do you think the future holds for First Nation communities in Australia and how our men contribute to those communities? I think the future will be brighter because of the work that uh, so many of us are doing. Uh and I think that there is a, a great shift in this country that people like yourself, Tara, you know, when you're writing and, and how that teaches truth to, to the world, um, I think we're, we're moving into a time where we are celebrated more and that people like that journalist that we spoke about, you know, they are being left behind. You know, there are fewer of them. And uh, and that's that's the world that we want to be. We see people like uh, you know the authors in this book, Joe Williams and Keenan Mundine, and all these men that have been through all these things, and are and making sure the next generation are going to be stronger than us, and that the next generation of men are not going to be behaving the same way that that I did when I was young. That's there's great hope for the future. Um. I think when we're talking about, you know, the future of our of our nation and our leaders, it makes me go back to, you know, the beginnings of your writing um, and finding the heart of the nation and, you know, your experience of travelling around with the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And I think the book does touch on the need for a voice in the Constitution about substantive reform. Yeah, yeah. I think like everything, all issues that, we are trying to resolve as far as the way that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are treated in this country, all connect to the need for a First Nations voice in the constitution. Uh, because all of the all of the damage that has been done, all of the ignorance, it, it, I mean, it all stems from one place and that's the federal parliament and the laws and policies that they make. It doesn't matter what we talk about, about the issues that we have in Indigenous affairs, whether it's about crowded housing, whether it's about the justice system, 
whether it's about native title and the problems with native title and the, the weakness in the provisions for us to be able to negotiate benefits on our land, health problems, and all of the things that these men talk about in, in this book all relate to our powerlessness in decision-making in this country. Um, you know, I, I talk about the White Australia policy in my letter to my son uh, and, you know, and the old apartheid and all of those things, you know, the protector of Aborigines and the way that they treated our people. Um, these, when the Constitution was made in 1901, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were completely excluded. We were talked about as a dying race. And if you were to ask anyone today, I think they'd agree that we should have been included in the way that power is shared in this country and, and how decisions are made in this country. Um, and so it all relates to establishing constitutional power for Indigenous people. And Joel Bayliss talks about it quite strongly in his letter to his son, uh, he talks about the way that the Bill Leak cartoon, you know, influenced him and his family and, and how harmful it was. Um, and and he, he points it out, actually, that, that our voicelessness in this country um, is, is the ultimate reason for all of, all of these problems continuing. And, and it's time for that structural change that the Uluru Statement calls for. So, you know, this book is a political statement, um, just like the Uluru Statement is. There's been a lot of scaremongering uh, in response to the Uluru Statement from the heart too, like more more stereotyping, I suppose, like uh, the immediate government response. I remember it in 2017. I was I was shocked by it. Oh, they they want a third chamber of parliament, and let's just say that ain't going to happen. I think that was the deputy prime minister in all his wisdom within about two days. Yeah, Barnaby Joyce, and he's since apologised. You know what the interesting thing is, though? Despite the scaremongering um, and despite a pandemic, like we did research in March, we did polling, Crosby Texter, that showed that, um, you know, close to 50%, so 49% of Australians would have voted yes uh, in a referendum to enshrine a voice, and 20% were definite no's, and then there was all the rest in the middle. Um, in August, we... Uh, updated that polling, and it showed that 60%, close to 60% of Australian people would vote, would vote yes, and the no vote is down to 16%. So there's, despite a pandemic, despite the fear-mongering, you know, and some of the fear-mongering is the same fear-mongering we saw during WIC versus Queensland, you know, native title negotiations and all of that. Uh, despite that, as Australian people learn about the call for a voice and the call for constitutional change, the Uluru Statement, um, they support it in greater numbers. And, uh, you know, I think that goes to some of the things that we said during this conversation, that there's this great change in sentiment and, um, you know, the future looks bright. And the Uluru Statement from the heart was the the end result of a massive, uh, massive consultation, a huge conversation across Australia with Indigenous people. And then you went around the country afterwards, just wondering, during that time, it was a year, for a year or 18 months, I understand, that you toured with the Statement from the Heart. What were you hearing from Indigenous people? Yeah, so the first places I took it to was to my friends in Gurindji country, close relationship, you know, the union and the Gurindji mob from the Wavell walk-off days. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's this, doesn't matter what Indigenous community you go into, 
um, the thing that you'll hear is that they're not heard. You know, that politicians will come, you know, if they're lucky at all, um, or close to an election, and they they don't hear what the people are saying. They uh, they make these decisions in complete ignorance to what they're saying will work in these communities. And so that's always the consistent message, and it comes through in the Uluru Statement. It, it's come through in every other process that has happened. There's been two more processes since then about you know, what we need to do in this country. And both times it says uh, people, the Australian people and Indigenous people have said that we need a voice that hostile governments cannot get rid of, which means constitutional change, um, and that um, Parliament is forced to, to listen to, you know, and it, it comes down to accountability, you know. The things that politicians have gotten away with that are talked about in these pages in this book um, none of them have suffered any repercussion, you know, for their failures or the intentional harm that they've caused. And I think a voice is such an important thing to hold them to account. And that, that final report, Thomas, is now sitting on Minister Ken Wyatt's desk, everyone understands. And are you, are you confident you're going to see some legislation in this parliament in response to all of the different reports? There won't be legislation in this term of parliament. They've just run out of time um, and and we don't want them to legislate it. We want them to take it to a referendum and enshrine that there will always be a voice first. That's the priority. Um, the detail of how the voice model works, that'll be legislated, but that should be uh, sequentially after it has been enshrined and it, you know, and it will always exist. You know, we really want a referendum in the next term and what gives me confidence uh, about this report that's coming out is not so much the detail that's going to be in it, um, but through the weight of numbers in the public consultation part of the development of this report. Over 10,000 Australians responded, and from those that have been published publicly, just over 3,000 I think it is, over 90% of those submissions say that we need to go to a referendum to enshrine a voice, as the Uluru Statement calls for. So the report can't ignore that. And, uh, you know, that's a thing that we should concentrate on. And we can win a referendum. We can absolutely win a referendum. You know, people are learning all the time uh, about the truth of the past. I think, I think a majority of Australians know the truth. And I, I know as a fact that the politicians know the truth, right? We don't need to do truth-telling to them. They get the Closing the Gap report every year um, and every year it fails. They acknowledge country. They've got all the Royal Commission reports sitting there gathering dust. They know the truth. What needs to shift here is political power towards Indigenous people. Thomas, just, just finally, I know your dad wasn't necessarily crazy about the idea of, <laughs> of you publishing a, a letter to him. Uh, I'm just wondering how he went with it, whether he did actually read it in the end. And, and I'm also wondering uh, what your son's reaction was too. Yeah, yeah. I'll just read that little opening of the letter to my dad so the, the listeners understand. I say, dear dad, when I announced I would become a writer, you said you wouldn't read my books. I wasn't hurt. Instead, I was emboldened. You have always demanded that I mustn't talk about you to anyone, how you have managed to survive and provide. But here in this letter, Dad, your modesty will be outdone by my pride. And why shouldn't a son be proud of his father? You have overcome so much. So, you know, my dad's this real humble 
and modest guy and and so uh he has softened a bit in his old age so uh the answer to your question is but we didn't take it very well uh, that, that i'm writing about him not at all uh but uh i say well too bad you're not reading my books so i'll write what i want about you <laughs> yeah and and how about your son Oh, my son loves it. Yeah, you know, he he just called me the other day, and he's working his way through the rest of the letters. You know, because I always humbug him to read instead of just playing the PlayStation and stuff when he's on leave from work. And uh, yeah, uh, it's a it's a really special bond that we have, and I think it's stronger since we we did this. Well, the letters in this book are beautifully whimsical, searingly honest, and largely devoid of anger. They're remarkable for that. I think. Um, Loving ourselves, as Thomas writes, uh, is an act of defiance. And within that message is really the strength and endurance, the resilience, I think, and the, and the great sense of self of Indigenous men that you've brought to the page here. Um, there's a lot of hope too, which you've both identified. Um, Thomas, congratulations on this book. And, and uh, Tara June, thanks for talking about your part in helping to inspire it and for sharing your personal reflections on its very big themes. And congratulations again on your uh, wonderful novel, The Yield, and all, it, all its success. Thanks a lot for chatting today, both of you. Thanks a lot, Paul. Thanks heaps, Tara. Thanks, Thomas. Thomas Mayo is the author of Dear Son, Letters and Reflections from First Nations Fathers and Sons published by Hardy Grant. Tara June Winch is the author of the 2020 Miles Franklin award-winning novel, The Yield, published by Penguin Random House in Australia. I'm Paul Daly, and you've been listening to Book It In from Guardian Australia. If you haven't already, please like and subscribe to this podcast. And if you have a minute, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo and Alison Chan. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Melanie Tate. We'll be back next week. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.